Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. My co-host and colleague Lisa Abramowitz is on vacation, but he's not on vacation. Dan Fuss is the vice chairman of Loomis Sales and Company based in Boston. And Dan Fuss has been called by many the Warren Buffett of bonds. He's an expert in the world of fixed income, and he joins us now. Dan Fuss, thank you very much for being with us. I, I want to start off by asking you about the Federal Reserve's program to let debt run off their books. And I'm wondering. If you combine that with today's inflation report, do you believe that individuals and consumers will still have money to spend to keep the economy roaring? Um, the quick answer is yes. The um, the Fed is Pim. The Fed is very very early in this process, and they are tiptoeing through it. And as they gradually bring down the balance sheet and start to, or continue to move up Fed funds rate, uh, they're keeping a careful eye. Now, I'll be the first to say, hey, that inflation report and things along what I would call the periphery of it, the advanced indicators, they say, okay, here comes more inflation. But there's so much more to it. Now, the Basic readings on the economy, on employment, are also strong. So that's good. So from a domestic viewpoint, uh, it looks like they're on track to gradually take rates up at a steady pace. Uh, after a while, you and I will feel that a bit, but only really if we're going to borrow. If we're asset holders and are thinking of selling them, depending on the asset, uh, housing, for example, things like that, then we would say, well, this is good news because I'll probably get a higher nominal rate as we go forward. Uh, if, on the other hand, we want to borrow to buy something, we're going to say, uh-oh. And at some point, you start to lose the buyers for things, again, like real estate. So that's the net net of it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned real estates because, for example, let's say you take a 30-year mortgage rate of 3%. Let's say it goes to 5%. That means your monthly payment increases by yep. 20%. Uh, and it means you've got a headache, for sure. Now, Pim, uh, if you've got adjustable rate mortgages, you got a problem in this environment. And so, by the way... Uh, does the lender, uh, if the lender has lent at a fixed rate. So it's the borrower's problem if it's adjustable rate and the lender's problem if he's lending at a fixed rate. So this is, uh, this is really not a good thing. Um, and you're going to run into some natural constraints on the economy at some point. Where that point is I don't know because we're at basically full employment if you say if you use the standard indicators or even if you go over and you you use participation rates 
you know, things are, are, are humming along just fine. The one caution in this, uh, I forget which one of the Fed speakers was speaking yesterday, but he said, you know, all systems go according to the, the dot plots and things like that. Inflation's rising, the economy's strong, they ought to be shrinking the balance sheet a bit and taking uh, short rates up. Okay, that's that's well and good. But he also put in the proviso that I think is in all of our minds now, saying this is all subject to or bear in mind that we have some uh, changes on the trade front that might lead to surprises in here. That's a big uncertainty. You really don't know what's coming. Uh, I, my analogy on that is I, I it's like raising teenagers. You're all ready to proceed on a certain basis, but then you know you've got a huge uncertainty here. Same thing in the forecasting business right now. Well, is this Help. is this is this more like a, a you know a movie Ferris Bueller days off or or <laughs> or is it more like a Jack Nicholson in As Good as It Gets? Well, uh, you see more movies than I do, but it's uh, this is not as good as it gets. So you believe um, the economy will continue on this path? I think the economy is strong. Now, here's where the worry comes in. You, you, you know, just from reading the papers, you say, gee, I wonder what impacts the tariffs. And it's more than the impact of the tariffs. It's the geopolitical impact of some of the things that are going on. How will they affect various aspects of the financial markets and other things? So you've got that. Um, but it also says, you know, if we model this out, based on past experience, um, what happens in a setting like this? What do the models say? Well, the models say you get stagflation. Ouch. Now what do you do? And the other thing, uh, Pim, uh, is uh, you and I have talked about this before. Going back in our memories, we remember um, 1998. So does the Fed. They've mentioned this uh, when the money went sailing out of Southeast Asia to come here. Um, we all, as the Fed raises rates, we attract money from other parts of the world. And to the degree the other parts of the world become a little less certain because of trade restric uh, restrictions of some sort and the subsequent uh, geopolitical pressures that come with that, it's broader than trade, um, then they say, well, I want to be in a safe place, and if the safe place has the highest rates, all the more reason, so I'm going. Uh, the capital can do that, not so easy for the people, but they'll do that with their capital. Then we've got a real mess on our hands. So uh, that's a fear, and the Fed's got all this in front of them. And uh, it, it's an uncertain time. Right now, they're, they're sticking with the script, which is we're going to bump rates once or twice this year and another three times uh, next year. And some of them are saying again in 2000. Uh, and I, I don't know how high they're going to go. My own guess guesstimate is about three on the Fed funds rate. Uh, 
by then they'll have something where the rest of the yield curve will normalize to some degree, not to long end. Long end's different, but out to 10 years, we'll sort of normalize. That, that's, that's the wild guess, Pim. Thanks very much. Dan Fuss, Vice Chairman, Loomis Sales and Company. He's been called by some Warren Buffett of bonds. The shares of Rite Aid, they are lower by more than 20% since the beginning of the year. And we know that uh, Rite Aid and the combination with Albertsons not necessarily going to make it to the checkout counter. In fact, it's been a return. It's back on the shelf. Here to tell us more about this potential combination and why it didn't work is none other than Bert Flickinger, Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group. Bert, why didn't the Rite Aid Albertsons deal go through? It didn't go through because large institutional shareholders in their idiocracy got greedy and they wanted more money when the crazy company was trading at about a buck before the Albertsons bid. And uh, they wanted more than $2. Albertsons, to its credit, walked away, has $24 billion to buy better things. And uh, Rite Aid faces a potential cataclysmic collapse. Okay, but if you're so clear about this, what advice do you believe the Rite Aid shareholders are getting? What's the story that they're hearing? They're hearing from ISS or institutional shareholders who they have a lot of respect for. Typically, it's right. But increasingly, you have Baker scholars from Harvard Business School and uh, the the institutional arrogance of the I-95 Ivy schools from Penn to Princeton uh, to, to, to Yale to Cambridge uh, and Columbia. And they're just looking at spreadsheets. They don't understand the rhythm of retail. They don't understand the detail of retail. They don't understand the synergies. They don't understand... Bob Miller, CEO of Albertsons, humble country boy from Mississippi, but the best turnaround artist in retail for the last 40 years. Bob saved Rite Aid the first time when Rite Aid CEO Marty Grass committed the financial fraud sent uh, to the government. This you, is Bob Miller. Yeah, Bob, Bob Miller, Miller of saved, Albertsons. Saved, yeah, saved Rite Aid the, the first time with, with Mary Sammons when it was unsavable after massive financial fraud and the executive officers uh, did, did eight months and or eight years in a federal facility. Miller comes to save it the second time. It should be proverbial manna from heaven uh, for, for, for the uh, Mensa, candidate, Mensa men uh, running these institutional funds, but they, they act like Mensa society morons and, and turn Albertsons down, and, and, and now they're stuck holding a bad credit, uh, and they don't have the capital to reinvest to compete effectively and connect with consumers, whether retailers the number one seller of tobacco in the industry and can't invest in beauty and health and solar and all the things that Albertsons, Osco, Save-On Drug, and others are doing so well. How much money do you believe that Rite Aid needs, or is there no estimate yet for what they need in order to fix what is going on in their stores? Uh, in in uh, my professional view, and followed, followed the company for nearly 30 years, about $5 billion. So if you look at what Chris Baldwin did successfully with his IPO, invested in solar, being the leader in New Jersey, New England. Institutional funds shift from being with proverbial Mr. Burns from The Simpsons and nuclear uh, to solar. Uh, We've done outside research up to uh, 23% or more of consumers switch uh, to 
uh, places like BJ's, Albertson's, uh, Solar Flagship in D.C. with Safeway, Solar Maze Landing. Every, anybody going to Jury City Shore this weekend will see it. Rite Aid can't do solar for their warehouses to convert customers. They can't do it for the stores. They can't uh, do the beauty like CVS, Target, Walgreens, Boots uh, in-store. Uh, and Albertsons uh, with the late, great uh, Doug Sagan, whose funeral I went to in Chicago, tragically died at 55. But what Doug and his brothers and Bob Miller have done at Albertsons in Chicago and across America with their uh, eight different banners. It's transformational, and it would have saved Rite Aid. And what Susquehanna Highlands and Alberta Investment Management are thinking about, in my professional view, it's like Oprah Weiss with Topps Friendly Markets. Uh, you, 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 you could wind up uh, buying bonds at 100 cents on the dollar or stock at a buck fifty uh, on, it, on its way down to next to nothing, as we talked before. The Toys R Us bonds on the Bloomberg terminal uh, and the unsecured debt that was supposed to get 100 cents uh, on the dollar recovery pin is getting three-tenths of one cent. That could be the catastrophic consequences for these crazy investors and ISS and uh, made the wrong move on, on the guidance in rejecting the Rite Aid offer. Turn your attention now to another acquisition that didn't happen. And this is important because it relates to advertising revenues. Sinclair Broadcasting and Tribune Media, the Tribune stations. What do you know about that? Pim, we, uh, as you know, we've done a lot of Federal Trade Commission uh, work with all, all the commissioners, uh, all the, all the uh, chairmen and, and women. And the F FTC staff is is a little too officious and and vigilant and and not looking at digital and consumer communication. So with uh, to your point, Sinclair and Tribune, that would have been the perfect combination to create more competition, particularly in an election year where whether it's uh, Bloomberg or or other networks, the cost of media is at an all time high and will get even higher going to the presidential election in 2020. And Sinclair and Tribune could have customized. Uh, separately, they'll be okay, but the old Janis Joplin, the combination of the two is better, uh, and it's uh, too, too bad uh, the F FTC didn't let them combine, think it was uh, too much of a uh, hor horizontal concentration of competition. Let's turn to something that might be more positive. Who's doing really well in this current retail environment? I we uh, we love Amazon. Full disclosure, uh, shareholder for a long time. People go uh, go to his or her Bloomberg. I uh, can see this uh, stock price essentially uh, trebled in in a little over three years. And uh, you look you look at it. You look at uh, Chris Baldwin, uh, who I didn't keep him from going from the priest going into the priesthood uh, when he dis disappointed his uh, mother and, and grandmother at Siena College. Didn't go into the seminary. Uh, I was part of the team that hired him for Procter & Gamble, turned Hess Retail around, turned BJ's Retail around, one of the most successful IPOs on the Bloomberg Terminal this year. Uh, BJ's is, is hitting on all cylinders. Uh, uh, you're also seeing Macy's under uh, 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 Jeff Gannett and uh, Tony Spring at Bloomingdale's with Frank Blake on the board uh, re really start to gain uh, tremendous uh, momentum, too. And uh, talking to Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet, uh, CVS will, uh, and Walgreens Boots will, will capitalize on, on this uh, Rite Aid catastrophe as well. So uh, while there's an accelerating retail ice age in bricks and mortar retail, a uh, lot, lot of opportunities in 
bonds uh, with the Bloomberg terminal as, as, as well as the equities. Uh, but as uh, your friend Laszlo Berigny says, and uh, Dan Sullivan uh, and Kurt Wolf, uh, you have to be selective in, in what you pick and really go through the terminal and find the best situations. Because as you mentioned uh, before the broadcast, you can't just buy the market. You can't just buy the ETFs. Uh, you have to be, like you said, Peter Lynch and, and, and really focus on the right situations. Bert Flickinger, many thanks. Bert Flickinger is Managing Director of Strategic Resource Group. You can follow Bert on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. Earlier today, President Donald Trump said that he has authorized doubling some of the metals tariffs that have been placed on Turkey. He cited poor relations with Turkey, which is a NATO ally. This is also over a conflict having to do with the detention of an American pastor. Here to help us understand what's going on in Turkey and whether this is a full-blown crisis is Midge Rahman. He is the Managing Director of Europe for Eurasia Group, joining us from London. Thanks very much for being with us, Midge. What do you make of this crisis? Is it self-inflicted or was it a long time coming? To some extent, it was a long time coming, but it's been handled in a very knucklehead way by the Turkish administration. Essentially, what Turkey has done is misinterpret the recent situation around the U.S. pastor Andrew Brunson. I think from Erdogan's perspective, the U.S. is extremely eager to have the pastor released. And as such, Ankara is now playing hardball regarding the kinds of demands it is hoping to extract in exchange for this release. And I'll I'll give you an example of some of the things the Turks are hoping for. Uh, There's a probe against Halkbank. They're hoping that any fines against that bank or sanctions would be be limited. They're hoping the chief executive of that bank, Hakan Attila, will also be released, as as, as well as a number of other concessions. And I think this is a big misinterpretation by the Turkish side of where the U.S. is in this standoff. Based on what you've seen happen to the Turkish lira today, do you believe the sell-off will continue? I do. And I think, I mean, the the comment from Erdogan um, and the new treasury and finance minister, Al Bayrak, essentially suggests that what what they're hoping to do is let this crisis run until local elections next year. They're very important for the AKP, for Erdogan and and his team to assess the AKP's popularity. I think they want the crisis to essentially to manage it through until that time period. I don't think markets are going to give them that much time. So I think what you will see is more conventional policy action by the government, interest rate rises. But it's a really open question at this stage as to whether or not that will suffice to stem the bleeding that we've been seeing in the lira. Will steelmakers, particularly in Turkey, be able to survive until those elections? I think the broader question is whether the crisis can can run that long, and I think that's highly unlikely. I think unless you get a move by Erdogan in the fairly near future to release this pasta, we're going to continue to see pressure from the U.S. administration. So I'm thinking perhaps more sanctions against high-level Turkish officials. If there is that standoff, of course, that's going to bleed into the market. We're likely to see more capital flight, more pressure on the currency. And it's at that stage, I think, 
you know, Erdogan will essentially be faced with, with two very tough choices, either an IMF program or capital controls, because this is a country that has large external vulnerabilities. They have a large current account deficit that needs financing, which means they are dependent on external capital. So ultimately, I think Erdogan is going to concede, and we will see this pasta released more quickly as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, after a long delay. But at the moment, I think, as I say, I think the Turks believe they have more bargaining power and they're trying to extract more concessions from the U.S. And I think that's unlikely. Banks in Europe are exposed to what's going on in Turkey, specifically BBVA, Unicredit in Italy, BNP Paribas in France. If they called Midge Rahman and asked for his advice, what would you say? I mean, at this, at this point, I don't think the, the lights are flashing red. I think the ECB, single supervisory mechanism, the SSN, the regulator, is, is aware of exposure to the Turkish economy and to the banking system. So, you know, there's, 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 there's some active monitoring going on. But I don't think at this stage we're near a crisis. If, if Turkey really were to enter a full-blown balance of payments crisis, and I think there, there would be some hit on the respective banking systems you've just outlined. I don't think that would flow to become a large political crisis in any of these countries, because in countries like Spain and indeed France, a lot of work has been done on the banking system through their respective crises since 2008. So, you know, I think there is exposure. The ECB is keeping an eye on that, but I don't think this will necessarily precipitate or trigger a crisis in any of these markets or with respect to their banking systems. Do you believe that Turkey will make an application to the International Monetary Fund for funds? So this is the problem for Erdogan. I mean, since he came to power, he has built a political narrative on the back of having freed Turkey from the clutches of the IMF. So do you think about the the recent elections, the fact Erdogan has now instituted a presidential system that gives him um, a, a huge amount of power and sway and influence over the country's institutions, accepting the risk of the IMF would massively constrain his ambitious mega political project. So this isn't easy. However, I do think it's the more likely outcome via the capital controls, which I think would be extremely damaging economically and, 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 bro- and broadly, I think, frankly, for the, for the economic reputation of the country. So this is why I think you will see t- today the government will announce an economic reform plan. I don't think the idea of fiscal consolidation or meaningful structural re- reforms will be apparent. I think the market will be unconvinced. I think this pressure will continue. And as I say, we'll see conventional policy action, interest rate rises, probably an emergency hike in August. And then I think it's really for us to see whether or not we have to head down the route of an IMF program or capital controls. Midge Rahman, thank you very much. Managing Director Europe for Eurasia Group joining us from London. Not content with its success on the small screen, Google is looking to the big screen, billboards in railway stations, shopping centers, and shop windows in Germany. 
The company could be branching out as it uses data from its user database in order to display advertisements targeted to specific audiences. Here to tell us more about this is Alex Webb, the Bloomberg opinion columnist covering all things technology when it comes to Europe, and he joins us from London. Alex, a pleasure to have you here. Explain exactly what you believe Google is looking to do. So this story is really coming from Wirtschaftswoche, which is in some ways the closest thing that Germany has to Business Week. It literally is the translation. And um, th they have reported that Germany, as that Google is in talks uh, in Germany to get into out-of-home advertising, which is billboards, essentially, and, and crucially digital billboards, you know, uh, screens which you see at, as you say, at train stations and, um, and uh, you know, around the place uh, in, in town centers. Now, the thing that Google, where Google can bring an edge to this is at the moment, those screens are kind of bid for in a fairly classic way where someone says, I would like to have 20 minutes over the course of the day of my ad being displayed at these sites. What Google does with its ads online is called programmatic advertising, where essentially you um, have a live bidding process that every time someone who kind of matches the demographic you want to target visits a website, algorithms bid against each other to show an ad to that person. Now, it's unlikely that they'll be able to do that on such a specific person-to-person -person basis, but they might be able to do it more demographically. So if it can tell from the number of mobile phones in the area that there are males aged between 25 and 30 with an average income, income of X, then it can decide to push a particular kind of ad to that billboard. Well, Alex, let's use an example of a train station. And you have people arriving from different locations, perhaps for different events. In your column, you speak about a potential soccer match. Give us an example of how you could be on different platforms of a railway station and see different digital ads. Yeah, exactly. So particularly as uh, more train stations introduce Wi-Fi, for instance, which can tell within quite a concentrated area which phones are there, it can then probably, um, you know, automatically identify that the people on that platform overwhelmingly have an interest in sports, and um, therefore it's better perhaps to push them ads for beer or soccer cleats or something like that. Whereas if it's um, on a different platform, there are commuters heading home from work. Um, it could probably work out that it might be better to sell them an ad or push them an ad for a car, for instance. Um, and uh, it's that sort of specificity which can enable a better return on the investment in ads. Therefore, they might be able to charge more and generate more value from that kind of billboard real estate. What is the market for this billboard real estate, this digital billboard? So it's uh, proportionally as a... As, proportion of global ad spend, depending on where you are, it's something between 5 and 9%. And people tend to estimate the global ad market is somewhere around $550 billion. So, um, you know, it's not as valuable right now as uh, digital ads on the web or indeed on television. It's a small part of that, but it is also everywhere. And it has been slower to catch up with the ads revolution than other parts of the ecosystem. Now, the one thing I should add is that you know digital ads and, and ad targeting based on user data uh, or cell phone data is already something that happens in a lot of places. It's just not as sophisticated as it might be. And Google clearly has a lot of expertise in really highly sophisticated ad targeting. Now, this highly sophisticated ad targeting depends on location-based mobile data, correct? 
Yes, it would be. Uh, ultimately, you know, Google in Europe, for instance, it has 75% of um, cell phones using Android. That means that it's got a pretty good sense of what sort of people are in any given area at any given time. Um, now, I, I when I was at uh, the Cannes Ads Festival last month, I spoke to some people about this, and they said, for instance, that they, you know, they have they already buy data from um, mobile phone carriers, and that helps them. Um, work out who is there but as i said like it's the ability to automate that process and therefore um you know reduce some of the overheads where google can really innovate and, and drive this forward alex if for example you are taking a train in the london underground and you're waiting on the platform with your mobile phone and it's connected to the free wi-fi in the london underground can they then use that information to then push ads to you? Well, I, I, this is where there's something of a gray area and there's not much legislation right now. Um, but I think at the moment it would seem unlikely that they would be able to do it specifically to me. You know, it'd be quite creepy if, for, for, instance, for instance, I'll give you an example. I, when I visit Amazon, for some reason I don't smoke, I get ads for Nicorette constantly. Now, I think it's because I bought a, a, a French liqueur, which a lot of smokers drink. And so therefore it assumes that I'm a smoker. Now, that sort of, every time I went on a platform, if I were to get a an ad for Nicorette, I think that that might you know, feel like an intrusion. And also, I don't want to have some sort of reflected judgment from the friends who might be on the platform with me. So uh, you know, that sort of public, specific advertising, I think is something which will not happen anytime soon. But I, this sort of broader demographic targeting is something which is developing. I want to thank you very much for enlightening us. A fascinating topic. Uh, Alex Webb, our Bloomberg opinion columnist for all things technology, based in London. And I encourage you to read his piece on Bloomberg.com slash opinion, all about how Google ads will be targeting a billboard near you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.